The United States and France are threatening foreign intervention in West Africa, in particular in the country of Niger, where a pro-Western government was overthrown. This is a region of the world that is very rich in natural resources and is also very strategic for the United States and France. Of course, France colonized West Africa and still maintains many neo-colonial policies, which I'll be discussing today. But also, the United States has one of its largest and most important drone bases based in Niger. And Niger is one of the world's largest producers of uranium. And uranium is used for European energy, especially France, a country that has a lot of nuclear energy. As well, Niger is a major producer of gold. So the possibility of a foreign military intervention in Niger and potentially other West African nations is very seriously on the table. It is a threat that many countries in West Africa are taking seriously. And we have seen statements from neighboring countries of Niger that have similar governments, like in Burkina Faso and also in Mali, that have said that if there is a foreign intervention, they would consider this a declaration of war. The possibility of war breaking out in West Africa is very real. And as is pretty much always the case, Western powers are the ones fueling the fire of this conflict and threatening war. Let's not forget that this is a region where there were very recent examples of Western military intervention. In 2013 and 2014, France led a military intervention in Mali, a neighbor of Niger, and in 2011, NATO, led by the United States with the support of France and Canada and other European nations, destroyed the central government of Libya that was led by the revolutionary leader Muammar Gaddafi. They killed Gaddafi, and still today, a decade later, Libya has no central government. It's been in a state of civil war, and now there's a possibility of the Western powers expanding that conflict to the west and to the south, to the Sahel region. So we're, today we're going to talk about what's going on in Niger, also in Burkina Faso and Mali and Guinea, and the threats of Western military intervention. Now, I will clarify at the beginning here, I am definitely not an Africa expert. I would never claim to be an Africa expert, but I've done a lot of research on these events, and I want to talk about the geopolitical and economic implications and how this is part of a larger international campaign by the United States and by Europe European colonial powers to reassert a kind of neo-colonial policy politically and economically, in particular on resource-rich countries in the global south. Africa is an extremely resource-rich continent, and the Western powers have relied on exploiting its mineral wealth and exploiting the labor of African workers in order to get rich and in order to maintain their riches and their inequality. Almost all of West Africa was colonized by France, which committed brutal war crimes and atrocities. It committed genocide. It used concentration camps, the same kind of policies that the Nazis also used, the French Empire used in Africa. And today we see that many of these nationalist military leaders in countries like Niger, Burkina Faso, and Mali are invoking the historical legacy of the anti-colonial movements and even revolutionary socialist movements like Thomas Sankara's movement that he led, the revolution he led in Burkina Faso in the 1980s. And the French government is really trying to reimpose its neo-colonial control over these former colonial territories. Now, in the past few years, there have been a series of coups in West Africa, in the nations of Niger, Mali, Burkina Faso, and Guinea. Now, some of these coups were actually linked to the U.S. military and were led by officers trained by the U.S. military and or trained by the French military. But there have been a series of coups. Some of the governments have been pro-Western, but some of the military coups have been led by officers who are nationalists, even revolutionaries, and who oppose 
French neocolonialism and also U.S. imperialism and have been asserting more sovereign independent policies. And this is exactly what we've seen in the past few years in Burkina Faso, Mali, and most recently in Niger. In late July, a Western-backed leader was overthrown in Niger and a military government was declared. And this isn't necessarily super surprising considering the number of coups in the region. However, the response of Western governments was different because, of course, the U.S. and European powers have organized countless coups all across the global south when it serves their economic interests in order to control natural resources and the labor of countries in the global south. And in Africa, there are countless examples of democratically elected governments led by anti-colonial leaders that were overthrown and in some cases killed by the Western powers. One of the most famous examples of this was Patrice Lumumba, the founder of the Democratic Republic of Congo, which had been a Belgian colony. Belgium committed genocide when it was a Belgian colony. And in 1960, he helped lead an independence movement and he was democratically elected in 1960. And what happened? The Belgian regime, backed by the United States and particularly the CIA, they kidnapped and they murdered Patrice Lumumba and then they dissolved his body in acid, only leaving behind a few teeth. That's all, it's the only memory they have of this democratically elected anti-colonial leader who founded the modern country of the Democratic Republic of Congo. That's how Western governments treated him. They backed a coup and they installed a right-wing pro-colonial dictatorship that ruled with an iron fist for decades. And there are many other examples across the African continent and in Asia and in Latin America of the Western powers doing that. However, Sometimes a coup happens and they immediately denounce the coup. And you have to ask, that's strange. Why are they denouncing the coup? It's not because they care about democracy. That's the rhetoric of the State Department. It's, of course, because the new coup government doesn't serve their geopolitical and economic interests. This is exactly what is happening today in Niger, Burkina Faso, and Mali. In the last week of July, a pro-Western leader was overthrown in Niger and immediately the French government denounced the new nationalist government led by the military. And Macron, the French president, said he will not tolerate any attack against France and its interests, emphasizing its economic interests in Niger and saying essentially that they're threatening the possibility of foreign intervention. The U.S. State Department also very quickly released a statement denouncing the new military government in Niger and said, the United States welcomes and commends the strong leadership of ECOWAS, that is the Economic Community of West African States, in order to defend the constitutional order in Niger. And essentially, the U.S. and France are using ECOWAS to serve their geopolitical and economic interests and to try to reimpose a pro-Western regime, not only in Niger, but also in Burkina Faso and Mali and Guinea. And the, the State Department very clearly said, Antony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, said that they want to restore immediately they want to immediately release and, and restore President Mohamed Basoum. He's the pro-Western leader. Even mainstream media outlets have referred to him as a pro-Western leader. And the U.S. said it, it welcomes the dispatch of the special representative of the ECOWAS chair to Niger. And it said the United States will remain actively engaged with ECOWAS and West African leaders on next steps to preserve Niger's hard-earned democracy. So once again, we see the threat of foreign intervention and the U.S., as is common, especially with Democrats, is trying to give a fig leaf to the intervention by claiming it's multilateral, it's international, by using an organization like in the case of the Libya war, the, the war that destroyed Libya in 2011, they use NATO. And here in this case, they're using ECOWAS. Or in the case of Haiti, they also tried to create this international coalition for the military occupation of Haiti. That's what the U.S. Tr frequently tries to do for PR reasons. But really, if there is an intervention, we all know it's going to be behind the scenes led by the U.S. and France. And this is essentially a kind of neo-colonial intervention. It really must be stressed that for the U.S. military presence, the kind of neo-colonial 
US military presence through AFRICOM, African Command. Niger is extremely geostrategically important. It is right in the middle of the Sahel region, and this is a region that the US has a lot of military activity in. There are hundreds of troops that are in Niger and also neighboring countries. And the US uses its drone bases in Niger, right in the heart of the Sahel, to try to impose its control over the rest of Africa, in particular in North Africa and West Africa. So if the US loses its puppet regime in Niger, there is a possibility with that the new nationalist military government may try to kick out the US military bases and soldiers. And of course, again, also cut off access to France and the US uh, from importing uranium and gold. And in fact, there even are reports that the military government in Niger has blocked exports of uranium and gold to the West, which is exactly, of course, what they're afraid of. Now, one of the main economic interests that Western powers have in Niger is its uranium. Niger is one of the world's leading producers of uranium, and Oxfam, the humanitarian organization, the anti-poverty group, published a report back in 2013 detailing how France was making a killing, profiting off of the uranium in Niger, one of the poorest countries in the world, and yet the people in Niger, who are known as Nigerians, not to be confused with Nigerians from Nigeria, these are different countries. So Nigerians, largely living in poverty, have not benefited from the wealth of their natural resources, which instead has been benefiting Western corporations, like, for instance, in France. France. And this report in Oxfam back in 2013 pointed out that in France, one out of every three light bulbs is lit thanks to Nigerian uranium. In Niger, nearly 90% of the population has no access to electricity. This situation cannot continue. I want to repeat that. Around one out of every three light bulbs in France is powered through nuclear power that is largely due to Nigerian uranium. It, and we're talking about a, a, one of the poorest countries in the world where, as of 2013, nine out of 10 Nigerians did not even have electricity. Here's another quote from this article from Oxfam. It is incomprehensible that Niger, the world's fourth largest uranium producer and a strategic supplier for Arriva, this French energy company, and France is not taking advantage of the revenue from this extraction and remains one of the poorest countries on the planet. Now, some of those statistics have changed in the decades since, but the point is really still the same. And this gets back to what political scientist and historian Michael Parenti famously said about Africa and countries in the global south that were colonized. They're not underdeveloped. They are overexploited. Africa is one of the richest continents on the planet. It probably is the richest continent in terms of its natural resources, but its people have been made poor through colonialism and neocolonialism. And just because some of these countries on paper got formal independence from French colonialism or from the United States, doesn't mean that they actually have full economic independence. And many of the revolutionary leaders in Africa, going back to Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana, who wrote a book about neocolonialism, have said that until they have economic independence and sovereignty, they are not truly independent of the neocolonial system that Western capitalist countries have imposed on them. We can see this very neo-colonial attitude reflected in Western media reporting because immediately in response to the nationalist coup in Niger in the last week of July, there were a series of articles in the Western media talking about how strategically important this country is for its uranium reserves. Reuters published a report, Niger is among the world's biggest uranium producers. It noted Niger is the world's seventh biggest producer of uranium, and this radioactive metal is most widely used for nuclear energy. Politico published an even more blatantly kind of neo-colonial article titled Niger Coup Sparks Concerns About French EU Uranium Dependency. And the article points out that Niger, 
supplies 15% of France's uranium needs and also accounts for around a fifth of the European Union's total uranium imports, although that was before this nationalist-led coup, and now the new government has reportedly said it's not going to export uranium or gold, it's another gold producer, to the West. And Politico said very clearly, the coup in Niger could be a challenge for Europe's uranium needs in the longer term, just as the continent is trying to phase out dependency on Russia, another top supplier of uranium used in European nuclear plants. In 2021, Niger was the EU's top uranium supplier, followed by Kazakhstan and Russia. In the EU, nuclear energy is relatively important. As of 2022, nuclear energy represented around 10% of the entire energy consumption in all of the European Union. And it's fluctuated. It's been around 12%, depending on the country. It even, in fact, in the 1990s, it peaked around 13%. And for context, gas represented around 18%. So really, nuclear energy is quite important, especially in France. And since the 1980s, nuclear has, in fact, become one of the top sources of energy in France. In the 2000s, Nuclear represented nearly 40% of energy consumption, which made it even more important than oil. That figure has slightly decreased. In 2015, it was around 40%. It has decreased, and as of 2021, nuclear represented around 36 37%, but that's still more than oil. And as of 2022, nuclear represented 32% compared to oil at 35%. So the point is that in France specifically, which colonized Niger and many other countries in Western Africa, France relies very heavily on nuclear energy. And in particular, it relies on uranium for that nuclear energy coming from Niger. So here we have a very sensitive geopolitical situation and economic situation where European powers are waging this new Cold War on Russia. They're trying to block Russian oil exports. They have a boycott on Russian oil and a price cap. And furthermore, they're also trying to cut off their imports of Russian gas. And of course, Russia is one of the world's largest producers of both oil and gas. And for many countries in Europe, it was the largest provider of oil and gas. And it was also the largest energy partner of the European Union overall until this new phase of the war, the proxy war in Ukraine in 2022 that go back goes back to the, the U.S. organized coup in Ukraine in 2014. And the point is that now the European Union is trying to cut its energy relationship with Russia. And one of the ways that the region has done this is by emphasizing nuclear energy and countries like France are really going to prioritize nuclear energy. But now one of their top providers of the uranium they need for that nuclear energy had a nationalist coup against these neocolonial policies, in particular against French neocolonialism. So now we see that Europe, which whose economy in many countries now is going into recession, and whose economies are deindustrializing. Germany, the manufacturing superpower at the heart of the EU, is deindustrializing at breakneck speed. And they're further losing major sources of their energy because these countries, through imperialist policies, their economies are largely reliant on extracting cheap commodities, cheap raw materials from the global south. And now many countries across the global south have left-leaning governments or nationalist governments that are against these imperialist policies, and they want to develop economically. They don't want to be resource colonies of the Western capitalist nations. And we can see that happening right now in West Africa. In addition to Western corporate economic interests in exploiting Niger's natural resources, the U.S. also has turned Niger, at least before this coup, into a key ally in its military operations, a key security partner, really security is not the right word, it's really neo-colonial partner in its attempt to militarily dominate Africa. And this is especially clear when you look at the US drone bases that operate in Niger. This was acknowledged in a 2019 report in PBS. 
The report noted that the U.S. has been increasingly militarizing Africa, increasing its presence through AFRICOM, that is U.S. African Command. And one place where that expansion is best seen is Niger, where the U.S. Air Force has built a huge new base from which it launches drone aircraft. It notes that as of 2019, there were around 800 U.S. military personnel stationed in Niger, and that number actually has increased to around 1,000. And it noted that the U.S. was expanding drone operations. They quote a lieutenant general from the U.S. military, Thomas Waldhauser, who said that Niger, quote, have been a good partner in a very, very bad neighborhood. Partner is another word of saying, you know, proxy or puppet when the U.S. talks about its so-called partners. And this report noted that the the massive base that the Pentagon built there, the Air Force built, which is called Base 201, is the largest installation Air Force personnel have ever built. And it's not the only U.S. military base in Niger. Since 2013, the U.S. has been operating drone missions out of another base in Niger's capital. And PBS reported that the CIA is using another drone base in the northeastern part of Niger. The investigative journalist Nick Terse spelled this out more clearly in a report in The Intercept this February 2023. And Nick Terse, for people don't know, is really one of the only good investigative journalists working in the U.S. He represents this kind of old school of investigative journalists with people like Seymour Hirsch, who represents an endangered species, a rare breed of journalists who are actually critical of the U.S. military and aren't just propagandists for the Pentagon. And he noticed, he noted in this report that in reality, the Air Base 201, which is referred to as Bas Américaine in French, which means the American base. This is this massive base that the U.S. built in 2019 in Niger. He referred to this as, quote, the linchpin of the U.S. military's archipelago of bases in North and West Africa and a key part of America's wide-ranging intelligence, surveillance, and security efforts in the region, built at a price tag of $110 million and maintained to the tune of $20 to $30 million each year, AB-201, that is Air Base 201, serves as a Sahelian surveillance hub. And in this massive base that cost $110 million to make in in Niger, one of the poorest countries in the world where a majority of people don't have access to electricity. This is also home to U.S. Space Force personnel involved in high-tech satellite communications. The Joint Special Operations Air Detachment has facilities, and there is a fleet of drones, including armed MQ-9 Reaper drones, that scour the surrounding region day and night so this, he refers to this as a high security haven that sits on a base security zone protected by fences, barriers, upgraded air conditioned guard towers with custom made firing ports and military working dogs. So this is an extremely important strategic base for the U.S. neo-colonial military presence on the African continent. It uses Niger right in the center of the Sahel to try to dominate and control the region. And again, I want to stress, the U.S. is spending hundreds of millions of dollars on high-tech technology in this base in a country, Niger, where the vast majority of the population lives in poverty and doesn't even have access to electricity. This is the visible symbol of neocolonialism. It's not only French neocolonialism. Culturally, they're trying to impose the French language and French media, and also economically through the CFA franc, which I'll talk about, which France uses to control West African nations' economic policies. But also we see the military form of neocolonialism imposed by the United States through AFRICOM. The U.S. clearly sees Niger, or at least it saw the Nigerian government as a key ally against China and Russia because U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken visited Niger in March. And here's a report in Democracy Now! noting Blinken visits Niger, home to U.S. drone base, as Biden moves to counter China and Russia in Africa. 
And let's not forget that back in December 2022, just a few months before Blinken visited Niger, the State Department held a U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit, bringing together a bunch of leaders from across the African continent, along with U.S. President Biden, and they were meeting physically in Washington, D.C., and the State Department said that it recognized, quote, that Africa is a key geopolitical player. And of course, what they really mean by that is that the U.S. has been trying to pressure African nations to cut off their alliance with China and Russia. And in particular, Washington has been trying to prevent economic integration of China and the African continent through projects like the Belt and Road Initiative, which the U.S. has been trying to sabotage. And the African continent has been a key partner in these massive infrastructure projects that China has been carrying out through the Belt and Road Initiative. And Washington has been very wary and has been trying to reimpose its control on the region. So, of course, Anthony Blinken's visit to Niger in March was part of this new Cold War conflict. And Democracy Now! pointed out that U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken was visiting Niger and also Ethiopia, a, a country where the U.S. backed a civil war, backed by foreign powers, trying to destabilize the Ethiopian government. And uh, Antony Blinken w did this as part of the Biden administration's growing competition with China and Russia. It noted that Niger has become a critical U.S. ally in the Sahel region, and the U.S. opened a new drone base in the city of Agadez in 2019. The U.S. has about 800 military personnel in Niger, and Blinken's visit was the first time that a U.S. Secretary of State had visited Niger. And the, the report quoted a professor at Brown University who focuses on the cost of war project, which I've talked about before, and she pointed out that, quote, Niger is one of the last strongholds of U.S. security partnerships in the region. Now, it was one of the last strongholds of this kind of U.S. neocolonial footprint until the coup in late July, led by these nationalist elements that want to have an independent sovereign country in alliance with Burkina Faso and Mali. And that explains why the West has been so angry about this coup. It's not really that well known. It's almost never talked about. But in fact, France still maintains significant economic control over multiple countries in West Africa through imposing the so-called CFA franc. And there's a, a very good Senegalese development economist named Ndongo Sambasila. I'm actually I want to do an interview with him sometime soon to talk about this. But he has an article explaining this called French Monetary Imperialism in Africa. And he noted that the president of Chad, uh, Idris Deby, said in 2015 that there is a cord preventing development in Africa that must be severed. That cord is the CFA franc. And he notes it's a colonial currency. It actually used to be called officially the French African colonial franc. That's where the name comes from. It's a colonial currency born of France's need to foster economic integration among the colonies under its administration and thus control their resources, economic structures, and political system. And there are two different economic unions that are used that, that France uses to impose the franc. And one of them is called the West African Economic and Monetary Union, WAEMU. And the members include Burkina Faso, Mali, and Niger. So, I mean, again, we see French the French empire still imposing kind of neo-colonial control over these countries' economies. And what it does is it forces countries in West Africa to use this currency and to set it at a fixed exchange rate with the euro. And also that means these countries have no monetary sovereignty. And it also forces a centralization of foreign exchange reserves. So 50% of the foreign exchange reserves of these central banks in these West African nations have to be held in Paris in the French treasury in an operating account. And by the way, right after independence, you know, formal political independence, 100% of these West African nations uh, foreign exchange reserves were held by the French treasury. And that went down to 65% in 2005. And then, of course, France ma makes sure that these countries have to have free capital transfer within this zone so they can't have capital controls, which prevents them from 
implementing many socialist policies because of the fear of capital flight. So what this means is that these countries have their monetary policy controlled by France. They have an absence of monetary sovereignty. France holds a de facto veto on the central banks within the CFA franc zone. And furthermore, given the fixed exchange rate, the monetary and exchange rate policies by these West African nations are dictated by the European Central Bank. This is a neo-colonial device that continues to destroy any prospect of economic development in user nations. The CFA franc is a barrier to industrialization and structural transformation. It also encourages massive capital outflows of the wealthy elites who want to stash their wealth off offshore. And they note that membership in the franc zone is synonymous with poverty and underemployment, as evidenced by the fact that 11 of its 15 inherents are classed as least developed countries and the other four countries are in economic decline. And this economist points out that in order to continue to impose the CFA franc, France has never hesitated to overthrow heads of state who were tempted to withdraw from the colonial system. Many were, were removed in coups backed by France when they, they sometimes love coups, or they were even killed, assassinated, and replaced with more compliant leaders. And he notes, Silla notes, that economic development is impossible in these circumstances of neocolonialism. And the countries that actually have independent currencies like Morocco, Tunisia, and Algeria, they can mint their own currency and they are stronger economically than any user of the CFA franc. And people who defend this colonial system say, well, it leads to low inflation in these West African nations. But if that's not, that actually does not make up for the massive economic consequences. He concludes that the CFA franc is a good currency for those who benefit from it. The major French and overseas corporations, the executives of the zone's central banks, the elites wishing to repatriate wealth acquired legally or otherwise, heads of state unwilling to upset France. But for those hoping to export competitive products, obtain affordable credit, find work, work for the integration of continental trade, that is Pan-Africanism, or fight for an Africa free from colonial relics, the CFA franc is an anachronism demanding orderly and methodological elimination. It is a colonial currency and it has been imposed on these countries in West Africa. And that's why these new governments want to be independent of French neocolonialism. As I said, I'm going to try to get this Senegalese development economist, Nandongo Sambasila. I'm going to try to interview him sometime. But anyway, the point is that these countries have been suffering from neo-colonial policies. And there are now a series of nationalist leaders who say they refuse to be colonies and want to be truly independent and sovereign. Now, of course, it's very hypocritical and ironic that when there have been pro-Western coups in some of these countries, Western governments have welcomed them and refused to condemn them. And I mentioned that there actually have been a series of coups, not just one in Mali and Burkina Faso and Guinea in the past few years. And when the Western powers think that these new military leaders would be amenable to their interests and against China and Russia, they actually have been very excited about it. The Australian military cut out the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, ASPI, ASPI which is funded by the Australian military and Western governments. They're, they represent an arm, they're basically an arm of the Australian government that claims to be independent. Back in September 2021, there was a coup in Guinea and they were actually excited. They were happy. They were salivating because they said that the military coup could cruel China's plans for mining in Guinea. They were so excited. They said they noted that Guinea's coup impacts China's long term strategy to diversify its iron ore suppliers and not be dependent on Australia. Guinea is a mineral rich country. And it, it has a, the Samandu mountain range that has 8.6 billion tons of iron ore, which is very high grade. And also Guinea has been part of the Belt and Road Initiative. And in addition, they noted they noted, you know, that happily Aspie pointed out that China is worried about disrupting its supply of aluminum because Guinea is the world's second largest supplier of bauxite and meets 55% of China's demand for bauxite. So once again, we see that when these coups 
hurt Russian and Chinese economic and geopolitical interests, the West is very happy. But as soon as a military coup leader comes to power who opposes Western interests and wants to be independent, well, then they immediately condemn it and call for foreign intervention. And in fact, the leaders of the military government in Niger have warned that France is plotting a military intervention. And they said on state TV that France was searching, quote, for ways and means to intervene militarily in Niger, and that France had a meeting with the chief of staff of Niger's National Guard to obtain the necessary political and military authorization. This article in The Guardian, the British establishment newspaper, also pointed out that Mohamed Bazoum, who was overthrown, was, quote, an ally of Western power. So they're admitting essentially that, you know, this is what it's about. It's not about democracy. It's that a pro-Western regime was overthrown and a new nationalist government has come to power, which is allied with China and Russia. And that's why the West is now threatening military intervention to overthrow it. That may be easier said than done, however, because the neighboring countries that have military governments in West Africa of Mali and Burkina Faso have said that if there's a Western military intervention in Niger, they would consider that a declaration of war. I'm reading here from France 24. This is French state media. And they said in a joint statement, the governments of Burkina Faso and Mali warned that, quote, any military intervention against Niger would be tantamount to a declaration of war against Burkina Faso and Mali. They said the, quote, disastrous consequences of a military intervention in Niger could destabilize the entire region. They also said that they refused to apply the, quote, illegal, illegitimate and inhumane sanctions against the people and authorities of Niger. The Western powers have already imposed sanctions, which is how you know that they, they, they don't like the coup because oftentimes when they support a coup, they reward the, the coup regime with support. And now they're imposing sanctions. So what's the crime? Of course, the crime is being independent and nationalist. And not only in Niger, but also in Mali and Burkina Faso. I want to briefly talk about the situation in Burkina Faso, which is very interesting politically. In September 2022, there was another coup in Burkina Faso, one of a series of coups that brought to power a nationalist military leader named Ibrahim Traoré. He's now 35, making him one of the world's youngest leaders. He's the president of the country. And he has actually brought back some of the revolutionary socialist ideas of Thomas Sankara. Sankara had a revolution in Burkina Faso in the 1980s until he was overthrown in another military coup. And what we see now is that Traoré is invoking the legacy of Thomas Sankara. He's been making it very clear that he wants West Africa, the African continent, to be independent of Western neocolonialism. This July, Russia held a conference with a, a series of African leaders. It was called the Russia-Africa Summit that was held in St. Petersburg. And there is a report from TASS, the Russian state media outlet, that discusses the speech that Ibrahim Traoré gave, the leader of Burkina Faso. And he said, with this very anti-imperialist nationalist rhetoric, he said, quote, we are the forgotten peoples of the world, and we are here now to talk about the future of our countries and how things will be tomorrow in the world that we are seeking to build and in which there will be no interference in our internal affairs. So once again, emphasizing opposition to imperialism. And in his speech, the, the head of state, that is Traoré of Burkina Faso, focused on sovereignty and the struggle against imperialism. Quote, Why does resource-rich Africa remain the poorest region of the world? We ask these questions and get no answers. However, we have the opportunity to build new relationships that will help us build a better future for Burkina Faso. He said, African countries have suffered for decades from a barbaric and brutal form of colonialism and imperialism, which be, could be called a modern form of slavery. And then Traoré said, quote, a slave who does not fight for his freedom is not worthy of any indulgence. The heads of African states should not behave like puppets in the hands of the imperialists. 
We must ensure that our countries are self-sufficient, including as regards food supplies, and can meet all of the needs of our peoples. Glory and respect to our peoples, victory to our peoples, homeland or death. And he quoted the words of legendary Cuban revolutionary leader Ernesto Che Guevara. So we have a leader of Burkina Faso quoting Che Guevara in a speech at the Russia-Africa summit, condemning imperialism and calling for independence and sovereignty. And not only in Burkina Faso, but in the entire African continent and also in the global south. This explains why the Western powers are threatening military intervention in West Africa. It's not just about Niger. It's not just about uranium. It's not just about U.S. military bases. It's not just about bauxite in Guinea. It is about nationalist governments that have come to power in these countries that want to end neocolonialism, that don't want to be colonies of the Western capitalist nations. In fact, we've also seen that the new revolutionary government in Burkina Faso, which is supporting the government in Niger and also Mali, the new government has been allying with revolutionary forces in Latin America. And on July 19th, it was the 44th anniversary of the Sandinista Revolution in Nicaragua. And the prime minister of Burkina Faso attended the, the anniversary celebration. He was invited by Nicaragua's revolutionary president, Daniel Ortega. I was actually present at the ceremony on July 19th here in Managua, Nicaragua. And I saw the speech that was given by the prime minister of Burkina Faso. And this is a report that was published by Nic the Sandinista media outlet of uh, El 19 Digital. But I'm going to read here in English because our friends over at Kausachu News, based in Bolivia, they did a great English language translation of the speech that the Prime Minister of Burkina Faso gave in the anniversary celebration. And this was given by Apollinaire et Kielem de, de Tambela, who is the Prime Minister. And by the way, who is, who is de Tambela? He is a longtime ally of Thomas Sankara. When Thomas Sankara came to power in the 1980s, he was working in alliance in, to build solidarity and support for the new revolutionary government in Burkina Faso. He is a pan-Africanist. He has been affiliated with communist and leftist movements. And he was promoted to prime minister by Ibrahim Traoré, the, the military leader, the president of Burkina Faso. So it shows that now there is a return to the revolutionary legacy of leaders like Thomas Sankara in certain governments in West Africa. In this speech, Tambela said that he pointed out that they're recalling the historical legacy of solidarity between the revolution in Burkina Faso and the Sandinista revolution. He points out that Thomas Sankara visited Nicaragua in 1986 and the Sandinista leader, Daniel Ortega, also visited Burkina Faso in 1986. And de Tambela said that for people of my generation, there are things that unite us with Nicaragua, Augusto Cesar Sandino, and the Sandinista Front and Commander Daniel Ortega. He points out that they were following in Burkina Faso, they were following the revolution happening in Nicaragua in the 1970s. And he said that in 1979, when the Sandinistas took over, he said, we were, he, we were happy people of my age celebrated. And when Thomas Sankara came to power, Daniel Ortega and the Sandinista Revolution was something happy for us. We as students studied the history of Nicaragua. We, we followed its evolution. And by the way, in the same speech that he gave, he also gave his revolutionary greetings to Venezuela, Cuba, and Iran. And he said that Cuba's president, Fidel Castro, has been and was a very important person for the revolution in Africa. We have excellent memories of Cuba and President Fidel Castro. So once again, we can see that these nationalist governments in West Africa are building links with revolutionary movements in Latin America and invoking the revolutionary legacy of people like Thomas Sankara. Now, before I conclude here, I just want to briefly talk about the contradictions of this, because, of course, it is true that these governments did not come to power through revolutions. They came to power through 
coups led by progressive nationalist military leaders. Now, there is a historical precedent of this, especially on the African continent. One of the most famous revolutionary leaders in the history of Africa, Nasser in Egypt, he came to power as well in a progressive coup in 1952, led by a series of military leaders in particular. They were known as the Free Officers Movement. And Nasser was a revolutionary left-wing nationalist, and he nationalized many of the, the foreign economic interests. He, Im he implemented some socialist policies. He was also one of the co-founders of the Non-Aligned Movement, and he helped inspire an, an, a series of revolutionary movements across the Arab countries in West Asia and also in Africa. And of course, then in 1969, there was another progressive coup, a military coup led by a progressive military leader, Muammar Gaddafi. And he named his same movement, the Free Officers Movement, after the movement led by the leftist military officers in Egypt. And Colonel Gaddafi, like Nasser, he implemented many socialist policies and he used the oil reserves in Libya to benefit the people of Libya. He implemented massive uh, social programs and healthcare and education and public housing, giving housing to young families. Muammar Gaddafi also supported revolutionary struggles around the world. Like in Nicaragua and the Sandinistas, he also supported the Irish Republicans fighting against the British Empire in Ireland. He supported the Palestinians and their struggle against Israeli colonialism. And what happened in 2011, Gaddafi was killed by NATO, by NATO-backed extremist Salafi jihadist forces, and his government was destroyed by NATO in a war in 2011. Yes, we came, we saw, <laughs> he died. <laughs> And still today, there is no central government in Libya. There has been a civil war going on. And there are open-air slave markets thanks to NATO destroying the Libyan state. So anyway, the point is that there is a historical precedent on the African continent of leftist leaders coming to power through military coups. Although, again, they, if they don't come to power through a revolution, they, the possibility of them being overthrown by another coup is very real. In Latin America, there have also been examples of this. In Peru, for instance, there was a coup led by a revolutionary military leader, Juan Velasco Alvarado, in 1968, and he implemented socialist policies. He nationalized uh, foreign corporations. He also made Quechua a national language, the indigenous language, and, and not, not just Spanish. He also promoted labor unions and had land reform. And he ruled, but he was also overthrown in another coup. So once again, there is a danger. I mean, there is a history of some of these progressive military leaders. And one of the most famous of all actually was Hugo Chavez, who in 1992 also tried to have a progressive military coup against Carlos Andres Perez, and known as COP, C-A-P. And Carlos Andres Perez was a, a neoliberal. And in 1989, in the famous... Caracaso massacre, Cap or basically ordered a massacre of protesters who were, went out to the streets against the neoliberal austerity measures imposed by the Cap government, and thousands of Ven working class Venezuelans were massacred in the Caracaso, and that inspired progressive military leaders like Hugo Chavez, who was a lieutenant colonel, to try to overthrow the right wing regime and. Then he was imprisoned, but Hugo Chavez became a national hero and celebrity, and he was released. And then he came to power in 1999 through democratic elections. And of course, we all know the history of Hugo Chavez. He later declared the Bolivarian Revolution after, by the way, the U.S. backed a 2002 coup attempt against him that was briefly successful. So anyway, the lesson of the story here is that if you don't have a popular revolution like happened in China in 1949 or Cuba in 1959 or in Nicaragua in 1979, if there's simply a military coup led by a progressive or even socialist revolutionary leader, someone like Thomas Sankara, then they can be overthrown. And in the case of Burkina Faso, this is the history. Thomas Sankara came to power in 1983 through a military coup, but one of his main allies in the revolutionary coup was Blaise Compaoré, and Compaoré led another coup against Thomas Sankara in 1987. 
He killed Thomas Sankara, and then he ruled basically as a dictator from 1987 until 2014 in a series of you know rigged elections. And he was an ally of the U.S. He abandoned Thomas Sankara's anti-imperialist and socialist policies, and he became a pro-Western puppet and a neoliberal. So that is one of the dangers of the situation happening now. Yes, there are these nationalist, anti-imperialist governments that have come to power in West Africa, but because they came to power through military coups, if a right-wing military officer uh, overthrows the left-wing military officer and imposes a pro-Western regime, then they can back, they can sometimes rule with Western support for decades. And that's exactly what happened during the first Cold War. There were a series of right-wing pro-Western dictatorships across the African continent that overthrew the revolutionary leftist leaders, the Pan-Africanists, people like Kwame Nkrumah, people like Patrice Lumumba. And there is the possibility of that happening today. So I just wanted to have a brief overview of some of that history and talk about the geopolitical and economic reasons for Western governments imposing sanctions on Niger and threatening intervention using groups like ECOWAS as proxies, but really threatening the possibility of military intervention, not only in Niger, but also potentially in Burkina Faso, potentially in Mali, potentially even Guinea, to overthrow these revolutionary nationalist anti-imperialist governments and of course to try to reimpose political control and to exploit the natural resources and the geostrategic location of some of these countries in West Africa. And of course what's going on in Africa and West Africa is part of a larger international movement in parts of Latin America and Asia that are uh, where revolutionary leftist socialist forces are trying to overthrow imperialist puppet regimes and exercise national control over their resources and labor and economic policies to have real development. And that's what we report on here at Geopolitical Economy Report regularly. So I'm going to conclude here. I know this was lengthy, but I wanted to go into details because you're not going to see almost any of this information mentioned in mainstream Western corporate media. I'm Ben Norton, the editor of Geopolitical Economy Report. Please subscribe on whatever platform you're watching or listening to this on, especially if you're on YouTube. Please subscribe. It helps to promote this material in the algorithm. And if you want to support the work that we do here, the videos and podcasts, please consider going to geopoliticaleconomy.com support. And there are several ways you can support. The best is you can be go to patreon.com slash geopoliticaleconomy. You can become a patron to help sustain our work. We're totally independent. We have no big sponsors. We have no institutional support. We rely entirely on small donations from viewers and listeners. I want to thank everyone. I'll see you next time for more geopolitical and economic analysis and reporting.